I talked to Tuin from Vervet, and Vervet is a RTD, which is a ready-to-drink alcohol in a can company. And they recently won a big prize, equivalent of the Oscars in the uh, beverage, alcohol beverage uh, community. We talked about, you know, this idea that I always talk about is the ownable export uh, from the Vietnamese community, both uh, in Vietnam or the diaspora. And what challenges and what excites a founder like him is the conversation that we had. And I hope you tune in to hear the trials, the tribulations, and what it takes to sustain once you get to that level. And Tuan's been on the podcast a few times, and he always has this really wonderful point of view, very technical, and he's also very compassionate and very empathetic. Uh, to the uh, journey of a Vietnamese business person. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of... Good morning, Kenneth. I It's so wonderful to be back. This is one of my favorite places. And I feel always so lucky and grateful to be talking with you and your audience. Can you give me a little bit of background about the San Francisco World Spirit Competition? In our space, you know, when it comes to food and beverage, you know, the food industry really gets a lot of attention, you know, and that's normal, you know, of course. And I think for um, for beverage alcohol is our category. It's a little bit less uh, amount of attention, but um, that doesn't sort of take away the importance of the San Francisco International Spirits Competition. It's one of the world's largest and most prestigious. So for us, it's kind of like our Oscars. It's very intense. Um, first of all, the judges are screened and to be invited to be a part of the judging panel. And there's hundreds of judges um, for each category. And on top of that, um, it's three days of blind testing. So it's quite rigorous. That sounds like a lot of work on the organizer's part. Do you know sort of a, when you're talking about like a blind test? I mean, this is happening locally in San Francisco and they're bringing blind sort of like samples put in front of the judges. That sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Um, you know, Amanda Blue, the president and her team, uh, they spend, a, you know, a year. This is all they do. This is what they focus on. And it's not only and, you know, I think it's really important to understand that these submissions, they come in not just from the United States, it's global. And these are coming in from all over the world. So they're working across multiple time zones, her and her team organizing it. And at the same time, the judges are also coming in from all over the world. So these are the world's best palettes and uh, leading experts coming in to be part of this competition. When you think about like the James Beard or the Michelin, those kinds of awards sound like it's just maybe two guys going into a restaurant or three guys, you know, randomly just going into restaurants and testing out the food, writing up the report, then going back to wherever they came from and making decisions. This is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, of course, Michelin is is huge organization, you know, in, in comparison to San Francisco's uh, international competition, which is still large. Um, Michelin is is very interesting because they're, you know, it's not centralized where everything is sent. They actually have to send out um, 
you know, the people who are evaluating restaurants, you know, local communities are actually traveling. You know, so that is also a year round effort. But I think for this one, uh, just because the nature of beverage alcohol is all packaged, they have that that luxury of being no. able to send everything to one location. Yeah, that makes sense. You hear about the uh, the Michelin um, situation in Vietnam just recently? I believe we received, uh, well, yes, Michelin is back, right, in Vietnam. And that's an interesting relationship, right? Like, you know, between us and the French and to have them sort of come back because, you know, Michelin tires, you know, they had plantations in Vietnam and the the historical relationship hasn't been great. But, you know, like us, like, you know, it's like Gemini, two things can be true at once and they're there to really bring a lot of recognition. It's really going to help uh, those chefs and restaurants and the business and the tourism. But yeah, I've been tracking. We've won some, we've won some stars. It's amazing. The the irony of the French validating the food, the Vietnamese food. It's so, such a weird twist, but all right, we'll take it, right? I yeah, I mean, again, that's just one of those things of like we just have to sort of accept things that just aren't ideal. We actually don't need the French to validate, like we already know. And and of course, the French already know. Otherwise, they wouldn't have, you know, colonized us and like they wouldn't have known the value. I mean, look at what drives their fragrance industry, right? It's um, it's all of our botanicals that comes from our country, you know? So, of course, they know. Um, we've made the millions of dollars. I mean, the brand Deep Teak has two um two fragrances that are actually vietnamese names right so it's like you know and and so many of their other fragrances too but yeah it is it is a very interesting relationship we have with them we're going to go into a, a little rabbit hole with fragrances uh i had a guest come on recently and he manages all the luxury brands um he's the head country director for lux asia and we had this conversation about fragrance cosmetics beauty and the idea of european houses being sort of the pinnacle of the 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 ultimate mark and i was like does vietnam i mean because he brought up the whole thing about vietnamese production and fragrances and aromatics coming from vietnam and but we could do the same thing but I, but i asked him but well, what about the branding side he's like we could brand just as good but the problem is what happens, and I think this is tied to Michelin, is that you have stratas of years and decades of history of um, you know PR and media work that enables these brands to have layers. And you can't just be a country like Vietnam, brand new, you know, I mean, relatively new, supplying to the world of fragrance and beauty and then make a mark. It takes, he said, it was like, you know, and I think this is his opinion and I think it's valid, but it's like a hundred years of that layering of making sure that aesthetically everything's coming out like a brand like Louis Vuitton or, you know, Gucci and, you know, these European uh, companies. No, absolutely. First of all, I would love to meet him and I would love to talk with him for, for starters. Number two, yes, I, I hear what he's saying. And to build that sort of value and that cultural authority, those brands, yeah, they have a century. And, you know, it's really interesting. In fragrance in particular, many of those European brands started like as handcrafted. They were making like 
you know, leather goods for horses, bridles, and then, you know, and it just slowly, they expanded their product line and they became authorities on all things, you know, uh, the finer things in life, right? And it became luxury living. What I will say is we live in a time of different marketing and strategies and techniques where there can be a lot of acceleration and cultural value can be established quicker. Often, I know you and I personally, we spoke about this and also on another podcast conversation, um, we often look to Korea and what has happening there. So in three generations, I would say probably in like a very shorter amount of time compared to a century worth of brand building, um, Korean products and services that come out of there are now being established as high value, right? So their value has in increased. I think it doesn't wouldn't need take a century. And I think for Vietnam in particular, I think we can become that authority figure to the global audience in a shorter amount of time. You know, for example, Italy doesn't even grow coffee, right? And they've become authorities that somehow when you look to Italian critics and voices, uh, they know what they're talking about, right? And Italian coffee brands are seen as, as the best. What's really interesting about us, we actually grow coffee. And so this is where I think the acceleration can happen. And I think with really great smart communication, we can quickly be have that seat at the table at the top. And I think I know we can do that and also in fragrance too as well. I try to keep a very positive outlook as much as I can. But when you say that, um, it reminds me of tennis shoes we don't have our own brand coming out of vietnam yet we make tennis shoes for the entire world right you think about it absolutely the same way. yeah i mean you nailed it we have all the pieces to the puzzle right we have all the parts i think what's happening right now is actually something very exciting that's part of the the larger asian american movement that we've been seeing and then of course we are one thread within that greater ecosystem but i think vietnam in particular um it's very exciting from an entrepreneurial standpoint and identifying opportunities and i think we see a lot of activity in the next five to ten years kenneth we're going to see some exceptional movement yeah, if you think about it, we were coming out of a place where we didn't have factory production. We didn't have lines of manufacturing, but we have that now. What we need, though, is ownable exports. And, you know, I've had guys like George Wynn come on, branding experts, talking about this idea of ownable exports. K-pop coming out of Korea is an ownable export. And I'm going to drive this home all the time. And that's why I love having guys like you and George on the podcast, because we can talk about the lack of brand awareness of a product that comes from Vietnam, yet we're making growing coffee, we're making these tennis shoes, we're making handbags, but there is no direct ownable brands, ownable exports that we actually have. So we we you know we really have to start focusing our attention and thinking about this. But you know, like the country director for Lex Asia was saying, you know. Things like fragrance and beauty takes a hundred years because that there's layers of, of you know, pounding the media and PR. But I think you're right that it, the time can be compressed now due to social media with things like tennis shoes and and uh, handbags. 
Absolutely. I would, first of all, I would love to, to talk with him again. And I would challenge that a little bit because there's the brand Le Labo, right? Which exited very quickly. Le Labo was really launched here in the United States and they were able to build themselves up as an aspirational brand. They're expensive. Um, you might've seen them around. They had a couple of beautiful brick and mortar stores here in Los Angeles of Silver Lake and Venice. And so I think what you can do is you can absolutely through brand creativity, owning the story, telling a powerful story well and consistently um, that you actually can establish yourself, that it will not take a century. Now, if you want to be an established estate brand like Louis Vuitton, yes, of course, there's some things that there's no real substitution for a natural time like that. A century of brand building is a century of brand building, but you can quickly become um, a respected brand in that space um, without, without needing a century's worth of effort and time. So I think in Vietnam's case, because we have all the pieces to the puzzle, the country itself is centuries year old, right? So we're when it comes to fragrance, we already have that story in place. So we actually have that time invested. Does that make sense? Yeah. That it's already there. And so I agree with you that I think the next stage for Vietnam is we're going to be owning the brand and we're actually going to be owning it, um, the entire company and process, because you're right. We manufactured, we do this for others and we let them brand our natural resources. <laughs> you know, we let them brand our you know, our infrastructure, they come in, they leverage everything, the production, and then they just brand it. And all that upside and value goes outside of our community. But I think what's what's about to happen, we're definitely on the verge and seeing a big shift here. Don't get me started on the rubber plantations. You know, I know same. in and all these beautiful places, there are so many rubber plantations. And um, when you're driving through them, it's just infinite uh amounts of rubber trees and then you think back to the french mm. doing business and it's 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 like slave labor wages you know in those days and taking over and you know and go back to the whole idea of michelin you know as a tire as a rubber company i know so ironic i know it it's they were abusive right and having them come back and you know what I'm very curious to to know is if they're going to acknowledge that in some way and, you know, and that would be helpful in sort of moving forward. And I think for me personally to be sort of accepting Michelin come in and I mean, listen, Michelin is also, they stand to benefit from this too as well. Right. And it's not just altruistic as, as they come in there, but just acknowledging the full history would be helpful. I mean, yeah. of course, it's here to stay. Michelin's here to stay. It's not going to go anywhere. And it really does help those businesses. Um, but yes, we cannot forget what they did historically. We cannot. And um, I think just knowing that holistically, we'll just, have, we'll just have a better relationship moving forward. As we discuss this idea of branding and we discuss this idea of layering months and years and decades of PR and branding, your win at this competition is a big deal for Vervet. So 
when I think about like these single wins or, you know, it takes years to get more of these wins, how much help does it really pour into the brand? It really helps bring awareness to the brand. I think that's the biggest first step for us is that awareness. And, you know, of course, as being in business, you want that awareness to convert to revenue. So we don't know. This is a first. This is a new thing. And um, for us to see if, you know, what how this is really going to impact our business, I will say the immediate impact that it has with us is in our specific industry. And uh, it's taking notice like, whoa, what's what's going on here? And um, and to see that happen. So we actually feel the effect first amongst the trade and the industry. And so you get that industry trade and respect. And that's really where the sort of the conversation begins. And then hopefully that gets pushed out slowly out to the, the consumer level. I think one part of what San Francisco International Spirits competition does really well is, you know, they want to have that awareness just like James Beard and Michelin does too to them and what they're doing. So um, they've been doing a lot of outreach to media platforms so that they can bring attention because they know how hard all of these people and creators that work in beverage alcohol spend on this and uh, capturing the mindshare of the general public would really be great so that we could, this competition itself can, can reach that same level of attention as, as Michelin and James Beard, but they've Forbes has really been all of it. So many media publications has been increasingly covering this. Um, I think for us, it, it means a lot, of course, for the brand and our company to have that, to, to receive this award and all the attention. And, but, you know, I think most importantly, we just feel that it's a huge success and win. it's a, it's a, I'm of mixed mind on this, right? On one hand, yes, it's great. We are the first Vietnamese owned brand to achieve this in the history of the competition. Significant. We broke a bamboo ceiling at the same time. We're the first, and that's not a good data point. It would be, it would be so different if I was, you know, standing here sharing this news and, you know, I was like the 50th, you know, but that's not the case. And so if anything, the impact that we really want to have is to inspire all creators out there that's hearing and listening to this right now, no matter what industry and category or service that you're working in, um, the sooner we get to the first, the sooner we get to the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, you know? So that for us is it's a, it, that for us is like defines our success. What is the steps to enter the competition? How does this all work? Um, oftentimes we were, well, you know, uh, we were invited, but there is an open call. And like anything, there's a long application process and um, very, you know, carefully laid out as they want to know a lot about your product, you know, very detail oriented, not just website information. Um, they want to know a lot about the team and, um, you know, how how everything is is produced um, and where and, you know, where you're getting you know, ingredients, how things are made. And then um, 
you send everything up to San Francisco and you do that months in advance. And then from then you just sort of pace around like an expecting, you know, an expecting parent, like just waiting for them. And then all the judges arrive, they fly in. Like I said, it's a three-day competition. Um, and that's really where, where it sort of begins. And then they contact you usually like four to six weeks after that. That's a funny analogy, an expecting parent, but uh, well, <laughs> that's funny. Good analogy. Um, so, you know, when I think about Vervet or, you know, our other wonderful um, Daniel Huaitin uh, over at Songkai, I think about good alcohol, good clubs, good music, good arts, good film, good writing. These are all like temporary holding spaces when you're at the top or when you're winning things, right? What do you think the ones that actually sustain over many, many years like LV or Gucci or any of these brands of human beings or actual entities that are creating these ideas of, of, of what we just see, what do you think the common thing with the staying power is? Quality products for one. And that is, you need that no matter what, you know, um, and a powerful brand story and communications and how they tell their story is really important. And because in telling that story really determines if the audience accepts it. And if they do accept it, then they invest and buy into the brand and it continues to expand. Um, and of course, luck, <laughs> you know, I think luck. that is it. What is the definition of success? You know, it's, um, it, it's like, you know, when preparation meets opportunity, right. And, and, and I, I think that's it. And, and that last part luck is something that you can't, it's an external factor. You Somebody know? asked me that about, about my guests the other night at dinner. I was at a dinner over the weekend and somebody said, so all of these people that you've uh, interviewed, what what is the the, the the common denominator? And I instantly came out of my mouth. It's luck because there's plenty of people who are better than some of these musicians or singers or whatever that don't get recognized. And then there's people who are like really bad that are doing really well. And there are these stories of people who are in these positions like directors or actors or whatever who didn't start out to do that they were accidentally or something happened they just got called upon they showed up right place right time and they were practicing this thing and then they got asked to do that thing and so i attribute even the whole idea of like practicing or whatever sometimes that's not even the case you know you're like going along thinking you're going to be a writer and then all of a sudden you know your friend says oh my god i need you to take me to this audition for an acting thing and then they become an actor on accident you know there's so much of that happening and i feel like sometimes we can only just do what we know how to do right in front of us and just kind of ride these weird life waves no you're absolutely right and i think that's why it's so important is like how we define success and yeah. and how we as individuals de define success that's very important because sometimes there's this notion of success it's like this financial and fame success and that is definitely one version and definition of success 
But because like you said, you could be doing one thing and all of a sudden something else happens, but you never, that was never your individual definition of success. You just, it, it accidentally happened, you know? Um, but it is absolutely true. Luck is, is such a unknown and a large factor in all of this. And um, that's something, it's a complete mystery. It's, it's, you just have to, you just have to keep your head down and just do what you do. Um, if, and no matter what, if you get up and do that every day, and that's your definition of success, right? And yep. and you you succeeded on on a daily basis. Those the, all that other that may or may not happen. So you just have to be happy with what you're doing on a day to day basis. So when when I think about a competition like this and you win it, I think about distribution companies, alcohol distributors calling up and saying, "Hey, we want your product," or you know, a bar or whatever. And I feel like when they start reaching out. Uh, and it sort of like st starts to kind of fall in line with year after year, you kind of get more distributors and you get more volume out there and luck. And this is just my question. And my thoughts is does luck in your situation right now happen when like Coca-Cola calls up and say, Oh, by the way, I just happened to be a rep for Coca-Cola and I saw your, and then they call you up and they're like, uh, I want to buy the company. Is that sort of like the idea? I know this is really basic thinking, but is that sort of the idea of luck happening in your situation? That would be, <laughs> if anything like that, absolutely, that would fall into that category. You know, you know, some, you know, angel of luck in the universe, you know, decided to 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 grant that to happen. You know, of course, that is, yeah, that would be in in our case. That would be like winning the lottery, okay. you know. Um, now, if that's winning the lottery, what are sort of like some of the stages that happen before that happens for a company at your size and stage? Oh, so many things that needs to happen. We're we remain a very early stage company. Scaling in CPG, you know, consumer packaged goods is hard, but scaling in beverage alcohol is even more challenging because it's government regulated. And um, everything that we do is and deeply, it's so cash intensive. And it's also requires a lot of so much physical activity. You know, it's just exhausting. We have digital marketing and um, field marketing, which is all in-person type of activations like samplings and demos and um, talking and meeting and educating. You know, marketing for us is educating. You know, it, it needs to be that way. And of course, we have limited resources, you know, uh, both cash and people. So it is a many, many things needs to happen. Um, I guess I could give you a picture you could measure this by um, what we, you know, in our industry called depletions and uh, how many case depletions month on month, year by year. And I think what needs to happen there is, you know, reaching for Coca-Cola to call, I for them to even be interested would probably be like 50 million in sales. You know, that's something crazy. I mean, maybe they might be interested earlier, like at, 15 million in sales. I don't know. It'd be up to that, you know, MA team, but it would have to be, I would say that those type of conversations probably don't really begin till 10 million and above. 
You know, I'm glad that we are now getting into the technical weeds because my question starts to happen like this. Where do you get that sort of knowledge, that mentorship to kind of understand the mechanical side of this back end? Because without that information as a Vietnamese founder in CPGs or in alcohol, you're kind of like wandering because my dad was like that, you know, 25 years ago. He was like, oh, I'll just go out and make some shit, right? But that's not the way we should be doing things. We should really be thinking that there are ways that people ahead of us have gone down and done this. And, you know, I've talked to guys from Redboat. I've talked to uh, people in other uh, beverage companies or CPG companies. And I think that these game plans with a sort of like a structure, if because I'm sure that there's guys that can flip a bank, you know, buy a buy a struggling bank, flip it, and do that four times. I know the guy over at there's a, a bank, a big bank called Genesis, who does that for a living. And it's a big bank. And if you have a playbook, right, in your industry, you could work up and go, okay, here are the pieces, here are the contacts, and here is the numbers that I need to hit. Is that something that is easy to follow for you? Um, it is followed to me because luckily I was able to get access to this information that, you know, other people have, right? Historically excluded groups were often, you know, didn't have access to this, yeah. this type of in information. Um, but luckily things have changed in the last couple of years and that has, you know, allowed us access to have this information. So, you know, there's definitely you know, MBAs that we have access to, you know, but more importantly, um, within beverage and alcohol CPG, I've been able to, you know, gain this information through business accelerators and, um, you know, that are really sort of tied to CPG. Of course, that's why I think I really want to give back. And as, as if I can help any CPG creators and founders out there, you know, you know, please, you know, get in touch with me, but it is, um, and you're absolutely right. I think what you just described, you know, I know in personal conversation between you and I, we often talk about like sometimes, we, you know, there's that adage, um, measure three times, cut once. And sometimes Vietnamese are like, no, just cut, figure it out later, you know? And I think you're absolutely right. We absolutely do need to be a lot more strategic in our thinking, understanding what type of, in, that, in this space, what type of business, what the actual goals are and where it becomes and making sure that we're working up to if there is an exit strategy, if it is, for example, uh, in a company designed for exit, then what what kind of case volumes working backwards from there to make sure that we have a solid plan in product, sales, marketing and operations that is all aligned towards that goal. And actually knowing the spreadsheet side of your business your forecasting and your planning is essential. It's information. It makes your crystal ball less blurry. Mm -hmm. And it also provides guidance for the team. Then everyone knows what they're doing. And everyone's not just sort of like flying by the seat of their pants on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, oh, we'll just figure it out today. We'll just, you know, you're just grinding with no North Star. You know, re remind what you just said about uh, measure uh, three times, cut once. You know, I, I I I put it into a Vietnamese term, like the word "thin" is to calculate, to figure out, right? So it's like one of my friends would say, like, uh, "buy now, thin sao," or "cut now, thin sao." That's sort of like 
the way the Vietnamese are. It's like cut now, then sao, figure it out later. You know, it's like that's not the way we should be doing. We should be calculating over and over and over and over before we cut. Absolutely. If you have a lot of wood to chop, Kenneth, spend most of your time sharpening your axe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it is. Um, and I know you and I are both in conversations and involved in our community, both in, you know, you know, here in the United States diaspora, but also back in Vietnam. And I know we see this all the time. We're like, you know, people are not spending enough time sharpening their axe before they chop wood. And things get in, you know, it gets, it, things get even more difficult because even when you do sharpen your ax to chop wood, things can still go wrong. Right. We'll go wrong. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it doesn't make sense to even introduce a lot more risk in the beginning when you don't have to, because this whole thing is so risky, no matter what, there's plenty of risk, even with the sharpest ax, plenty of risk. So you want to keep it to a minimum. So as we were talking earlier, before we got on the um, podcast, there actually is a few more alcohol companies. And I want to talk about this right now because I, I want to hear what you think about this idea. So there's Vervet with you. There's some Kai with Daniel, um, a new uh, company. She's been around for since 2017, a new uh, cognac company called Exto. Elegant design, elegant. Uh, she's from France, uh, Sabrina Zung. And the fourth one that I have off the top of my head is Suti, uh, Suti uh, Rude Distillery out of Dallas, uh, Texas. So there's like four now. Now, if the four of you founders would get together in a club setting, sort of like, you know, get on a Zoom call every week and, 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 and share notes, is that an abundance mentality act? Like, does that help? the four companies grow in in unison with each other or do you find that to be tough because there's like trade secrets although the four co alcohol companies are completely different from each other right you're you're different suti rude is you know it's like almost like a a, a whiskey or, or or rice wine uh package um you know and some guy is a gin and so they're all very different uh um facets of the alcohol business but if you guys all got together in a room once a month and shared notes and distributor stories and stuff like that would that help the four companies or would that not help that i just i'm just curious what you think absolutely i'm a big believer in collective intelligence and abundance thinking so absolutely that would help and you know i know i think of of those of those uh that you just mentioned i talk with daniel the most um, but yes, absolutely. I would, that would, that's a, a great idea and I'm in full support of it. And to the four that you named, I'd love to add shout out Dwen Ha of Bondo Wines. You know, she's doing French natural wines. So there's five, five. now and I ab absolutely believe that. And I know that, you know, even knowing Dwen and I think, I mean, I would assume that they would, I think all of us would probably feel the same. It would be great for all of us to get together and talk because, it's basically we could really help each other like distributor management strategies. There's just so many ways how we can come together and help optimize our businesses um, in a way where we can protect our resources 
and uh, gain acceleration, absolutely, and share strategies. So no, that would that's deeply valuable. And I would go even further and say that would be valuable no matter if you're in beverage alcohol, whatever your industry or category is, um, it would be really helpful. Yeah, I, I think this needs to happen ASAP. Uh, I'll, I'll make the introductions because I think the reason why you said, this is triggering in my mind what you said about uh, CPGs is hard to do, but when you do CPGs on top, um, alcohol on top of the CPG, it's even harder. So there's got to be some kinship with all the alcohol makers, all the Vietnamese alcohol makers, right? Because, you know, let's face it. I mean, why is it the government so controlling with alcohol, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of kinship. I think oftentimes when we get together, you know, even when I get together with uh, beverage alcohol founders, you know, outside of the Vietnamese space, you, you oftentimes we do spend a lot of time going through our pain points and, you know, commiserating together on the the difficulties of this and the three tier system and the government regulation. And every state is different and has its own complexity. So if you are distributed in more than one state, you know, not every state has the, the similar laws. So it, it makes it all very difficult. And I think the most difficult thing is there may or may not be a lot of value in educating the consumer on all of this because, you know, why would they care? Maybe we shouldn't even expect them to care, right? Um, but I think this really does impact like how we spend, what kind of margins that we can expect. And, you know, everything down to to COGS. And I think COGS is like where kind of the companies are, are, are I think that's like a, a foundational to a company, right? That's where the company really sort of begins as a business and the revenue side. Uh, because the reason why it's so important is you need as much money as possible in marketing and distributor support and field marketing. So it's, Beverage alcohol has a lot of a lot of challenges, but it's definitely those government regulations. Um, even with e-commerce, like we're so completely different, it costs us so much more to have an e-commerce offering to our customers. It really does cost the brand a lot. Why? 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 It's, it's. I mean, if you think about it, you're sending out like let's say a case of four, right? I mean, I'm just riffing here. There's four cans in a case, and it's a case. With liquid inside and you're sending it out why is it so difficult and different than a case with toys inside of it the difference is a company that is selling toys to you can sell to you directly right so um therefore their retail price and um that they're selling to you they're capturing more revenue so they're able to do that um for us, it's very different in beverage alcohol. So we cannot sell to you directly. We are actually, we have to work with an e-commerce partner. So we have to sell to them at the wholesale level. And so that's where we stop earning money. And then they put their markup on it because it is illegal um, in the United States for beverage alcohol to sell directly to you. For us, for brands like us, there is a couple of exceptions. For example, if you own and operate a winery, you can sell to the public. Um, 
Even with a distillery, though, if you own and operate a distillery, there's a temporary law that allows them to sell directly to the public. But that could end because uh, that was a COVID um, privilege, but it actually hasn't been ratified into law. The other complexity is there's a difference between beer, wine products and spirit products. But for a majority of brands uh, like us who don't actually own a production facility, um, we have to we have to partner with these e-com partners and we sell to them. That's when we stop earning money. So that wholesale price is very low. And uh, of course, and, and then on top of that, like oftentimes consumers may expect us to pay for shipping and 10%, 15% discounts that e-commerce partner will calculate all of those costs. And then we receive a bill at the end of the month. So I think that's common for all CPG, but I think what's very different for us is we're actually not truly D to C. We're actually not actually selling to you directly. I'm actually selling to a third party who then turns around and sells it to the public. Our website, it appears that we're selling to the public, but we're not. Okay. So this sounds pretty arcane to me, and but it may be not. Maybe there's some tax logic. Maybe there's some morality logic. Where do these laws come from? How is it that, again, uh, why can toys be sold directly to me and alcohol cannot? And why does it need to go? I mean, the, even the complexity of like being an actual winery, what's the difference between some guy who's packaging alcohol versus the guy who's growing grapes on a vine? You know, the government makes these calls and um, a lot of it is just happening at the business level. Lobbyists, you know, become successful and and getting and updating the code to different industries benefits everything is fought like right now there's a bill before the california you know senate and um, it would allow 10 percent and under abv products alcohol by volume products it doesn't matter if it's beer wine or spirits to be sold under one license beer wine that would be a that would be huge for companies like mine however the beer wine industry is fighting it because they don't want distilled spirits to have that same privilege that they've been enjoying. This all really, all of this goes back to prohibition. You know, so before then, alcohol was not regulated. And our country decided that's not a good idea. You know, it's, it's, we see this kind of as a drug. And uh, they, and then ultimately, it was prohibited. And when prohibition ended and they're like, okay, we're going to allow alcohol back into our country, but this time with regulation. And that's where it all is rooted from. And over the decades, um, there's, it's been updated and changed and some areas of the law gets updated. Others are really arcane. Um, and it just lags behind. It's so complex now and, it's it's like the tax code. Will someone come along and eventually simplify this? You know, I I don't have a lot of hope for it. And um, but it's it is what it is. And I think that's what makes beverage alcohol so complex. And it'll be like that for cannabis too. Cannabis is also complex. There's government regulation there too, and companies and brands that work in that space have to deal with so much complexity as well. It's just so crazy to me. When you think about alcohol and how it's actually made, it's like moonshine in Vietnam. Rude is made 
in people's backyards. You know, it's so it's not that difficult to make. Um, and we've lost that sort of like that ability to make it. Uh, we, you know, beer is not that difficult to make either. I mean, it, there's a process. And of course, there's master brewers. It's complicated, of course, at the high levels. But the basics of making and fermenting alcohol is not that difficult. And it's just perplexing to me that the government throughout the entire world, not just the U.S., is so involved in our lives when it comes to the production of alcohol or cannabis. Cannabis grows on trees. I mean, why is it, you know, I mean, this is a philosophical question. It's a rhetorical, you know, exercise here that it just blows my mind that there's just so much to these, uh, there's just so much laws and regulations around these things. When, you know, you're you're out to just make money and, you know, everybody should just be given a, ch a chance to, to, to produce and make it all at the same time. Uh, it might be too simplistic of me to, to, to put it out there that way, but it's how I feel sometimes. No, absolutely. I, I, I share your frustration and it is, um, yeah, of course it, it's also rooted in money too. I mean, alcohol historically, although I think drinking habits are changing. So it'd be interesting to see, um, you know, the, the total revenue of alcohol in general in, in the country, but there's a lot of money to be made. And, you know, of course the government wants a piece of it. I mean, we have alcohol tax, right. And the alcohol tax on beer wine products are different than, than distilled spirits, you know, distilled spirits is taxed at a higher rate, you know, than beer wine, but beer and wine has higher volume. Right. So I'm sure those, those industry voices really sort of negotiated hard for that. Um, but yeah, because they say, listen, you're going to get your money. We have higher volume, but if you could just lower our tax a little bit, and uh, and we, you know, we're we're producing products with lower alcohol in it anyway. But it is, yeah, it's taxes, and um, that's a big part. I know beverage alcohol generates a lot of tax for for local, state, and and our national government. So that is a big part of it too. So there's a lot of there's a lot of groups that can stand to gain, you know, financially. So that really sort of adds to all of this. Here's a question that I want to kind of like bring up all the time when I'm talking to you, uh, sort of like a gut check, right? Um, you've been at this for a few years. What keeps it exciting for you and what keeps you up at night? What? Okay, great question. Um, what keeps me excited and remains, exci remains exciting is our values. Right. I remember I had an early mentor uh, when I first started and he said, what you'll realize what you're doing with this company is you're scaling your values. And he could not have been more right. And I know, you know, for us, we're mission driven founders. And like we before we created a product, we created our values. And in some ways, that is our product is our values. And we took those values and we translated it into cocktails, but our company values can actually translate into anything. Mm. It, it could be a guitar, you know, it could be anything. Um, it could be clothes. It could be fragrance. It, it could be tennis shoes, you know, sneakers, right? It's the same values. So that's what keeps me excited is continuing to scale our values. What keeps me up at night is the marketplace, which is the external factors, everything that I cannot control. And that's what keeps me up at night there, you know, what is happening at, at the purchasing level, at the wholesale purchasing level and at the consumer level, what's happening in the marketplace. You know, we know 
we know that as you build a company, you go through stages. We've built, we have incredible values that um, personally, it's our personal values. We're very proud of those. We're very proud of the product that we built, our cocktails, our drinks. We, so much intentionality went into it. We took our time with it. We worked on this for close to two years on our cocktails, just working on a product and building a brand from the values of our product and the values of us as a company. But the marketplace building is different because that we're not really involved to fully to only to a certain degree. We can only do so much. The marketplace is wild. And that's what keeps me up at night. And um, is uh, the revenue coming in where we can become a sustainable business someday? You know, early stage companies, we're not, you're not sustainable, you're not profitable. um, And you want to get there as fast as possible. And that's really left up to the marketplace, wholesale buyers, the consumers, you know, and they're evaluating our price point. And um, those, those are the things that keeps me up at night. And is it like a tree where you just add water and fertilizer and it grows? Is there things that you can do in your control that can accelerate the growth of Vervet? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're to, hopefully we're doing everything and, but some things you're limited with, right? Because you have limited resources, you know, you have limited funding, you have limited people. So you do as much as you possibly can. And of course there's, you can always do more to accelerate. The truth of the matter in beverage alcohol is even to get to the first significant stage where you can become a, a valuable company, you would need a minimum of, of 10 million of investment capital, you know, to, to get to something really where it becomes really interesting, you know, to potential buyers. There's a lot of beverage alcohol brands, you know, Kenneth, there's a lot. So even if you become a five to $10 million business, which is sort of that early, 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 early stage, there's a lot of alcohol brands at that level. And so as people, you know, that are, in M&A and shopping around, um, you know, they have a lot of choices, even at that revenue level. And it's, it's all fickle, you know, what they want to buy, you know, depending on what opportunities they feel like that they can continue meeting. Um, But the, but yeah, absolutely. There's many things that you can do to accelerate and, and creativity is one we have, we have that resource. um, But I think the, where we're limited, of course, is it's all early stage companies. It's it's capital. It's just, you know, and and to get there. And of course, you want your business to generate its own capital so that you can become less dependent um, on investment capital. Um, of course, that's always the goal for the company to sustain itself. Um, but that's a lot of things that sort of needs that, that needs to happen. But beverage alcohol is just very cash intensive. Let's end our time by going back to the beginning, which is the competition and the prizes that you won. And, um, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, what categories and, you know, how this, uh, exactly, um, what you are given from the competition, what you are. Yeah. Absolutely. We, you know, we received four medals, which is great. So all, nearly every, almost all, all one, all of our drinks received a medal except for one. 
our Yuzu Sake Tonic, which we're so proud of, won a double gold. And what this really means is, and double golds, you know, is the highest medal that you, that you, you can receive. Now, there is the biggest honor, and that is best in class. And uh, that's similar to like best picture, mm-hmm. right? So um, we will not find out until June 17th of if we receive that, but we're we're one of we're we're one of five brands that is in the running for best in class and our category is called rtd in the industry that means ready to drink um you know these are basically all prepared cocktails and there was over 550 submissions uh around the world for rtd yeah absolutely over 550 and for us to now be in the top five for best in class is so like i said yeah it's for us it's that's more than a win you know um to to be in that to be in that you know that's pretty rarefied air for us and you know and we're i'm so happy to 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 represent um the vietnamese creative entrepreneurial community you know um and i'm proud to represent california and los angeles you know, in, in the running in this category. So fingers crossed, you know, that that happens, but I can say, you know, and talking to, you know, with, with us and, and, and my team, it's already a win, you know, where to be, to be one of, one of the five in best in classes feels tremendous. And it's, we're very, very proud of that. Well, good luck June 17th. I mean, this is happening in Vegas, I believe. Yeah, it is. It's yeah, it's it's a big yeah, it's it yeah, it's a huge it's a huge gala um for for our trade, but yeah, all happening in Vegas. Oh, that sounds like a fun uh event. Yes. And I wish you the best. And again, even if there is nothing um, you know, even if there's nothing beyond the conversation of what we are talking about today, getting to where you are right now in that competition is a massive win. Yeah, absolutely. I I look back at our entire journey and and here we are, like, it it really is amazing considering where it started. It this like everything, it starts on a napkin, right? I think about where we're at, at our napkin stage and what we've achieved between then and now, like it is already a rich and fulfilling journey. And um, I'm very, very grateful for it. Tuen, thank you so much once again. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.